0: Romans 13, and let me read uh, just the first five verses. Romans 13, starting in verse 1, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves." For rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do uh, uh, you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. We're returning uh, to this portion of Scripture for a third time, and we're trying to come to a biblical understanding of uh, uh, the role of government and our responsibility to government as believers. I said previously that as a believer, we really live life in two kingdoms. We first are citizens of the kingdom of heaven where we are called to obey God first and foremost. And then secondly, as citizens of the kingdom of men, uh, where we're commanded by God to subject ourselves or submit ourselves to earthly rulers. So we have to think carefully very biblically about our role in each of these spheres in which we dwell and, and think biblically on how we relate to those in authority over us. And again, I, the, the issue is we need to think carefully and biblically, not from a North American standpoint, not from uh, being citizens of the United States, but from the viewpoint of being citizens of the kingdom of God, what is our responsibility biblically towards authority? Again, verse 1 let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So, right up front, we realize the most fundamental principle that all authority comes from Him. Right, all authority comes from God. Uh, you go back to Genesis uh, chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God. Right, in the, in Genesis one. In the beginning, God. Right, God. He's the ultimate authority. Right, He's the ultimate power. So authority belongs to Him, and every earthly ruler has a delegated authority from God Himself. Everybody needs to realize that. Earthly rulers and subjects to earthly rulers, and, and everybody needs to realize that Christ is overall. Christ is above all earthly powers. Jesus Christ is the Lord. There's no power, there's no authority higher than him. Christ is over all. Therefore, every man owes Christ their allegiance. And every man is commanded to obey Christ. And all men need to understand that. That's a statement of fact across the totality of mankind. Christ is over all. Doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, you should, but that's the reality of things. All men are accountable to God. All men are accountable to Christ. And and, and the call by Christ when we take the gospel into the world begins with an acknowledgement of that very fact. Matthew 28, verse 18, Christ, uh, Jesus came up and spoke to them. That's the 11 disciples saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So again, all men need to recognize the authority that comes from heaven and earth, (coughs) or that is uh, from heaven upon the earth, or above the heaven and the earth, uh, belongs to Christ. Christ is above all earthly powers. Christ, again, is, is overall. It's not just a statement, but it's a matter of fact, it's a reality. And all men are going to one day learn that reality, either willingly or unwillingly, because all men are going to bow their knee to the person of Jesus Christ, So again, out of uh, Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? Observe all that I command you, right? And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So again, there's only one who has universal authority. There's only one who has universal dominion and power uh, that must be obeyed. And that authority wasn't given to him. All authority uh, wasn't granted to him. He didn't assume it. It belongs to him by divine right because he is the fountain of all beings. He's the origin of all power. He, he's God coming to flesh, again, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, all power is originally and essentially his. And that universal authority that he has in heaven and on earth uh, will allow him to exercise dominion in, over both realms. And again, one day, every man is going to acknowledge that fact. One day, every man is going to stand and, and deal with the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. Every, everybody's going to deal with him one day. So any man on earth who has any kind of authority really has a delegated authority. He has to realize that. That authority comes delegated from him. And to him, again, one day they're going to stand and give an account for how they have used that delegated authority. Now every person in in, in existence, with the exception of God himself, is under authority of some kind. Every person, with the exception of God himself, is under the authority of someone. And in order to see that, I thought it might be helpful just for us to do a little quick... A reminder of that reality, and you'll see it very clearly as we run through it, but there are basically five different spheres in which we all live. Five different spheres. Number one, on a personal level, right? On a personal level, we all live under the authority of God. We're all expected to obey Him, all expected to submit ourselves to Him. In view of that fact, again, that one day we're going to stand before Him and give an account for our life and our service to Him. That's a huge reality. We always have to keep in the forefront of our mind. Everything we do, when you wake up in the morning again, the first thing that should come to your mind is, Lord, help me honor you today. Because you're the authority, you're the one I'm going to give an account to. <clears throat> On a personal level, we're all under the authority of God. Secondly, we all live in a family of some sort. And within that family, everybody has a responsibility to submit themselves to the head of that family, usually the father. The husband, he is the head of the wife, biblically, and the Bible says that he is to love her, love his wife as Christ has loved the church. The wife, she is to submit herself to her husband as she submits herself unto the Lord. And the children, they are to obey their parents in the Lord. So there's an order, a structure, an authority, a government, if you will, even in the family. Third, we all live as members together in the church. And it's God Himself who has established a government in the church in the office of the elder. The elders are the ones who rule over us. They're the ones the scripture says uh, that we should submit and our, ourselves to. Uh, and, and they're the ones who give watch over our souls as those who are gonna give an account to God. And fourth, unless there's something kind of a, an unusual situation, most of us have to work. That is, if you like to eat, right? We have to work, so if we have to work, that means we have to submit or subject ourselves to our employer, our employer who, who's an authority over us. And fifth, of course, uh, last, we all live together in the sphere of the state. We all live together under the, uh, the sphere of the state. So we live; all of us live under a government, whatever form it might be, whether it's the government we live under or the government of Canada or Ethiopia or wherever, it doesn't matter. We Everybody lives under the authority of a government, whatever form it might take, and everybody has a responsibility to uh, submit themselves to that authority over them. So everyone, again, with the exception of God, is under authority. We're all under God. We're an authority in the home. We're an authority in the church, authority at work, and then authority in our country. So the question is, how do we respond to it? Now, last time, we saw that the Bible commands us to demonstrate a heart attitude of being in subjection to those who are over us, in authority. Again, verse 1, let every person, it means literally every soul, and what he's basically saying is without exception. There's no exceptions. Let every person, every soul, be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And I told you, being subjection is hupostoso in the Greek. It just means that we are to line up under. We're, we're to subordinate ourselves to. We're to yield. We're to voluntarily submit ourselves to those in authority over us. It's a present passive imperative verb, which just means presently, that we are to continually in action, uh, presently, currently, in, be in this process of, of submitting ourselves. It's passive. It, it suggests, again, there's a voluntary subjection of oneself to the will of, the other, uh, of another, and then it's imperative, which just means it's a mood of command. So this is what God wants us to do. Constantly, presently, voluntarily, by way of command, subject ourselves to the ruling authorities over us. So that's what the Roman Christians were to do, and that's what Christians everywhere are to do. And no matter, again, what, what country they come from, presently, continually, actively, voluntarily subjecting or placing themselves under the authority that is over them. And we're to submit, necessarily, uh, submit not necessarily because the person uh, over us is in and of themselves worthy to be submitted to or subjected to, but we're subjecting ourselves to those in authority over us because by doing that we are honoring God and obeying His word. So we line up under the authority above us. And when we do that, we realize that, key, that Christ is king, right? God is king over all. He is the Lord over the, all, all, over the entire earth, the ultimate authority. Again, all earthly authorities have a delegated authority that comes from him. And all earthly authorities are going to be held accountable by him to how they've used that delegated authority. So again, earthly rulers, biblically, are ministers of God, meaning they represent him, and they're going to be held accountable to him. Because everyone, including earthly rulers, civil governing authorities, are all under God's ultimate authority, and they'll be held accountable to give uh, account for how, again, they've exercised that authority, right? And because all earthly rulers are under the ultimate authority of God, they're not to govern by their own whims, desires, or hardened consciences, but they have to operate under the instruction that has been left for them by God because, again, they're going to give an account. And God is going to hold wicked rulers accountable for their wickedness. And when we have a heart attitude of submission, biblical submission towards authority, what we are doing is we are acknowledging that God is sovereign. Right? We, we're acknowledging that God is sovereign not only over the affairs of our life, the affairs of men, but He's sovereign over the governing authorities. And again, with the heart attitude of biblical submission towards authority, it's acknowledging by us, again, the sovereignty of God, that God is able to accomplish His will through whomever He may have placed in a position of power or authority, whether they be a good ruler or a bad ruler, a good ruler or a wicked ruler. So again, a proper heart attitude on our part acknowledges the fact that God is in charge and acknowledges, again, that God works all things for His glory and for the best of His people. So a proper heart attitude, again, a biblical submission towards authority forces us to place our attention on God and not on the human ruler over us. The human ruler, whoever they are, good or bad, are really acting in the hands of God for his purposes. And when we forget that God is sovereign, we tend to become bitter and angry with earthly rulers. I mean, I, I can't ever think of a time that there's been so much uh, nonsense, back and forth between this ruler and that ruler and this ruler. I mean, it's just nonstop, unending, right? And we get our focus on, I don't like this guy, I like that guy, I don't like... They're, they're irrelevant to a certain extent. God is the one who's sovereign. And again, when we take our eyes off God, we look at men, we become bitter and angry, forgetting that God works out his purposes through whoever is the earthly ruler, now, Joseph, I think I told you, he's a classic example in the Old Testament <clears throat> of a guy who could have been tremendously bitter when you stop and look at his life and how he was mistreated by his brothers and lied about and slandered and falsely thrown into prison and then forgotten. But when the whole thing comes to a conclusion, the whole story comes to a conclusion, he's reunited with his brothers uh, he, he, who. Uh, again, started the whole ball rolling, as it were, by selling him into slavery, he gave them a, the divine perspective on the entire situation. And he demonstrated an attitude of understanding biblical authority and divine sovereignty, right? Genesis 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order that he might bring about his, perfect, his present result to preserve many people alive. Again, the issue is God is sovereign, full stop end of paragraph, exclamation mark, big gap to the next statement, right? God is sovereign, and we don't, we don't have access to the mind of God. So all we have access to is the Word of God. And again, we need to think biblically, and we need to believe what the Word of God says, or we what? Struggle. One of you was awake this morning. Good. Right? Didn't I say that this morning? Those are options in life. We either believe what God says to be true, or We struggle. That's it. Across the board, doesn't matter what the issue is. God's Word is true, and we need to submit ourselves, submit our hearts to that. So again, uh, uh, Paul says there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That's a pretty vital point to embrace and understand. It doesn't say only those exist that I agree with are established by God. It's not what it says. There's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by him or established by God. Now, again, biblical submission doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as blind obedience. I told you there's a difference between obedience and submission. Obedience deals with performance. Submission deals with the attitude of your heart. uh, uh, Obedience deals with performance. You either do it or you don't do it. But submission deals with the attitude of your heart. How do you relate to that governing authority over you? What's your view of God in the whole situation of authority? So there may be times that you cannot, as a believer, obey an authority over you. And then when you come to that position where you just say, I can't do that, again, your refusal to obey the authority has to still be done with a hard attitude that respects the office to which that person holds. Now I'm going to address eventually the biblical reasons why there may come a time that you cannot obey the authorities over you, but that time's not tonight. I, I thought it was going to be when I first sat down this week and started working through this, but, but we have too much to consider. And so uh, I thought we, we just got to work our way through the principles first before we r- start running all these little tangents, t- because everybody wants to know when is it okay that I disobey because I don't like these people. I, I got it. I, I'm with you, right? I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just trying to say what the Bible says right, on how we're to deal with these issues. So let's do the principles first, and then we can get to the application of some other point. Now, last time we worked through, it was a couple of weeks ago on this here. we worked through five of the seven reasons that we are submit to submit to government authority. So let me just review quick the first five and then go to the last two principles. So five reasons that were given here in the text by Paul why Christians are to submit to human government. Again, verse one, let every person be in subjection to the governing authority. So reason number one is governments ordained by God. Government's ordained by God, or government is by divine decree. For there is no authority, it says, except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So again, human government is ordained by God. It exists for the benefit of society. Uh, Psalm 62, 11, all power belongs to God. All power belongs to him. Everyone in the universe is a, an absolute subjection to God and his authority. Uh, any kind of power that a person or a group of people may have on an earthly realm is divinely delegated authority. Again, it comes from God. God, in his wisdom, has permitted men to use delegated authority over the realm of mankind to govern here on the earth, right? The Lord is sovereign again over the affairs of men. Uh, He's well aware of what's going on in the world, uh, in a fallen world that's uh, greatly again influenced by uh, uh, the, the ruler of this world system, Satan himself. Therefore, what you get through the history of mankind, of men ruling over other men, is at times you get some very poor governments. Perhaps even at times governments that are highly influenced uh, by demonic forces. But God is still sovereign, without exception, without limitation. God is in charge. Now again, all power comes from him, all authority comes from him, all authority amongst men is delegated. And again, how well or how poorly men use that uh, delegated power and authority is a completely different issue. But again, the point number one is all authority, all power comes from God himself and God alone. He's instituted human government by decree as part of his plan to deal with a fallen mankind for the betterment of society. And again, while we may at times not understand why God allows uh, the worst and wicked governments and rulers to exist, we know that he uses them for his sovereign purposes to promote his glory. Sometimes God allows wicked rulers in order to punish wicked nations right and he allows evil to be displayed in contrast to his perfect goodness right if men don't like what's going on in the world then go to the righteous one who has all righteousness and holiness but evidently men like what's going on in the world because all they do is perpetuate confusion and chaos and evil they complain about it but they don't change because they will not bow their knee and again ultimately God's the ultimate authority right it's God is the ultimate authority human government exists but also what goes on in the church exists under God's sovereign rule, right? And we'll get to that at some point in the future. Secondly, the second reason why we as Christians are to submit to human government is that resistance to human government is rebellion against God. Verse 2, therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God. So government is ordained by God, he's instituted it for uh, fallen mankind, and rebellion against it is direct rebellion against God himself. The one who established human government, human authority. And again, that word resist basically means to arrange yourself in battle against. So in essence, what you're doing when you are resisting authority, you're setting yourself up to do battle against God. You're opposing God, which is probably not a very good position to put yourself in. Because God is the one who has appointed every government and every nation that's ever existed in the world. He's the sovereign. He's the one who determines the rise and the fall of the nations. He's the one that determines how long they exist at appointed times. He's the one who who, uh, specifically designates the geographical locations (coughs) and their boundaries in which they're going to function and exist. The system, the form of government, really isn't as important, again, as the hard attitude of the believer in submission, obedience whenever possible to the ruling authority over top of us. Again, <clears throat> we, to realize that Christians, uh, 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 if we resist the government, uh, again, we're in rebellion against him, right? If he's sovereign, he controls everything, rulers, nations, times, etc., and so forth. The third reason that we as Christians are to submit ourselves to uh, human authority is that those who resist human authority or human government are going to be punished. Those who resist human authority are going to be punished, verse 2. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed to the ordinances of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So again, since government in general exists by divine decree, to oppose government is to place yourself in rebellion against God. If you resist the government, if you resist government authority, you can expect to be punished by the government itself for its rebellion, for your rebellion. Right, if you, if you rebel against governmental authority, <clears throat> you can expect to be punished by that, by that government. Right, Break the laws of the land, expect to be punished. That's pretty simple. Number four, the fourth reason why, as Christians, we're to submit ourselves to uh, human government uh, or those in authority over us is that government serves to restrain evil. Government serves to restrain evil. Verse three, for rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. So again, we live in a fallen world, and and government has become a a necessity uh, because of the fall. Men and women, since the fall, they've become lewd, right? They're lawless, they're they're selfish, they're cruel, they're vile. And they have to be kept in order so that anarchy doesn't break out. In this world, uh, it belongs to God. And God has put a limit on the extent of evil that he will allow. Because if God did not put certain restraints upon fallen men, the wickedness would be unchecked. But God has ordained government to restrain evil. Therefore, for the most part, if you're an honest citizen, you have no need of fear of rulers. However, if you're a dishonest citizen, then rightly you should fear those governing authorities. Now again, not always, but as a general rule, even under the most wicked of governments throughout the history of men, for those who obey the laws of the land, earthly rulers really are no cause of fear for them. Because even under the worst of governments, under the most cruel, wicked rulers, Authority exists, again, as a deterrent to crime and a deterrent or restraint against evil, and even among fallen rulers, secular rulers, they know the difference between right and wrong and good and bad. So even unregenerate rulers realize that for society to function, it can't live in a consistent, constant state of wanton evil. Therefore, they know that part of their duty is to punish bad behavior and protect good behavior. So in general, if you do what is right, you have no reason to fear them. But if you do what is wrong, then you have right to fear punishment from that authority over you. And the fifth reason why we are to submit ourselves to a human government or to human authorities over us is that government serves to promote good. Government serves to promote the good. <clears throat> Again, verse 3 continue For the rulers are rulers are not a cause of fear over, uh, for good behavior but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Be uh, Do what is good and you will have... A praise from the same, verse four. For it is a minister of God for your good. All right, it is a minister of God to you for good. So God ordained human government to promote the welfare of uh, of the people, and in general, throughout the history of the world, law-abiding citizens have been treated uh, fairly, favorably by their government. Most governments, in again, even. Bad governments don't normally persecute those under their rule who are doing what they've been asked to do, uh, obeying the rules, uh, obeying the laws. Rather, they praise those who do the right thing. Now, I told you uh, previously that phrase, for it is a minister, government authority, it is a minister of God. I told you we really uh, we get our English word deacon uh, from that Greek word. So they're really a servant. They're an administrator of God. They're one who really carries out the commands of another. So again, God has not only ordained government to restrain evil, but to promote good amongst people. And those again in authority really serve God and they represent Him to carry out the divine command to promote good and to restrain evil. Now they may not personally recognize that; they may not again personally recognize the person of God and the authority that belongs to them. But that's their role biblically. That's that's how they function under divine authority. That's that's how they function, how they carry out that function, a different thing. But this is the biblical role, the biblical standard. So as Christians, whatever country we find ourselves in, instead of joining in those who oppose the government, even while we might have legitimate concern about our governors, we should be thankful to God that he's established government because he's established government to maintain order. We should be thankful to God that he has ordained government to restrain evil and to promote good. Now, human governments are always going to be imperfect because they're governed by imperfect fallen people. But even then, we can rest in the fact that God is sovereign, and God uses even fallen men for for the reasons of promotion uh, of his good and his glory. So again, government on a human level, human authority, human government, is a gift of God to promote good amongst the people. And and we need to see government in that light. So again, five reasons why Christians are to submit to government. Uh, Government is ordained by God, or government is by divine decree. Uh, Resistance to human government is rebellion against God. Those who resist human authority or human government are going to be punished. And then number four, government serves to restrain evil. And then number five, uh, government serves to promote the good. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good." Right? God has ordained government. God has ordained government to promote the welfare of everyone. And God has ordained government as a minister of good for all people. So reasons number four and five are really the true function of government. Ordained by God to restrain evil. Ordained by God to promote good. And that's vital. Put that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that eventually. That's basically the biblical limits of government and its role, as laid out here in Romans chapter 13. Restrain evil and promote good. That's the limits of human government. <clears throat> Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. He says, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings. And for a hall or an authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So, the kind of life that God wants us to live is a life that is tranquil, it's a life that is peaceful, it's free from internal disturbances. Uh, A quiet life uh, from external, a life free from external disturbances. Again, a peaceful life. A life that is lived in all godliness and purity. Uh, A life that is lived before God in a proper, honoring way. Uh, A life that is lived before men that is marked by holy behavior. That's the kind of life that God wants his people to live. Therefore, Paul bids us to pray for those who are in authority. Pray for kings. Pray on behalf of all men. So instead of being angry or hostile towards leaders that we have a hard time with, perhaps we ought to pray for those leaders. Pray that they might repent, come to a knowledge of the truth. Pray they might repent and embrace Christ and his gospel, that that may be transformed and changed. Even pray for Nero. Cruel, vicious, blasphemer, or persecutor of the faith. Pray that he too might come to a knowledge of the truth, a knowledge of the Savior. So that we might live in peace. So that we might live life free from the dominating influence of evil and live in an atmosphere that is good and peaceable. That's again the role of the government. Keep the peace. Right? Promote good, restrain evil. Keep the peace, keep law and order. And our role... Uh, as again, those who know the Savior is to pray for those in leadership, pray for those in our positions of authority. Again, that they would know the Savior, that they'd come to a knowledge of the truth. So, again, instead of picketing and protesting, perhaps we should pray more. Spend more time praying that God would open blind eyes to receive the truth, that we might be able to read our Bibles and worship and speak to people about the Lord in peace. So, a gentle and a humble spirit acknowledging the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men, with a compassionate heart for the lost, that would go a long way for us to try to get along as citizens of two kingdoms. And again, there's great rewards for us as Christians when we submit ourselves to the government and live lives that are exemplary, right? In society, we we, we keep the law. We try to encourage others to keep the law. Again, we do that because we want to be obedient to God and we want to live a quiet and orderly life so that, again, those in authority over us are pleased in the role that God has uh, placed them in. So, again, we as Christians should be the very best citizens in the kingdom of men. And everything we do should be for the Lord's sake. And everything we do for the Lord's sake, we should know that men are always watching us. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2, verse 13 Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as freemen, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as a bond slave of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So now we come to the sixth reason why we as Christians must submit ourselves to human government. And the sixth reason in the text here is because government has the right to bear the sword. Or government has the right to inflict punishment, even capital punishment upon those who break its laws. So again uh, Romans 13 verse 4 speaking about authority Paul says it is a minister of God for your good or the minister of God to you for good but if you do what is evil be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing for it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil So if you do what is evil you should be afraid because government bears the sword It's a minister of God, it's an avenger of God who brings wrath upon those who practice evil. Now again, the sword is a symbol of force. And God has given to the government the sword, the right to govern by force, the right to use ultimate power to make sure those among its citizenry does what is good and does not participate or practice that which is evil. So again, the ultimate symbol of power is the sword. The sword is not used to fine someone. The sword is not used to spank someone. The sword is used to take a life. The sword is used to inflict final punishment upon the wicked, the penalty of death. And Paul says that human government has been granted by God the authority to bear the sword. It does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So Paul is saying that God has given to the state the power to take life. God has given to the state the power to take a life. God has granted to the state the power to carry out capital punishment. So if you ever wondered whether or not capital punishment uh, was biblical or not, you need read no further than that verse. God has ordained government again in a fallen wicked world, He's empowered government with the power all the way up to the place where they bear the sword. They have the power to put to death evildoers. Now immediately in our day, there's a tremendous amount of pushback, a tremendous amount of hue and cry, if you will, against capital punishment in society and in a large part of the church because people don't understand the issue and they've not thought about it biblically. The common objections that are always put forward are two. Uh, First, God has uh, uh, commanded us not to kill, uh, therefore taking a life would be uh, the equivalent of murder. And secondly, uh, God has commanded us to turn the other cheek. So those who put forth those common objections or hold on to those common objections, the reason that capital punishment is unbiblical. But I just read the verse to you that says capital punishment isn't unbiblical because God has given the government the power to bear the sword. Right? They, they may hold on to these common objections, but the truth is these objections are not a valid argument here in this situation. Now in the Old Testament, you're aware of this, that God ordained or prescribed uh, the death penalty for a number of different uh, uh, issues. Uh, the death penalty was prescribed for murder, for striking one's parents, for blasphemy, for witchcraft, for any other kind of involvement in the occult. Uh, the death penalty was uh, prescribed in the Old Testament for false prophecy, for rape, for immorality for homosexuality kidnapping idolatry blasphemy of, uh, of the sabbath and God ordained government and gave government the power the authority to take a life in the form of capital punishment Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 whoever sheds man's blood by his blood he shall, or whoever sheds a man's blood by man's by man his blood shall be shed for in the image of God he has made man. So again, God has instituted government as, as a God's representative here in the fallen world. He's empowered the state uh, to be the avenger, God's avenger, to bear the wrath of God with the sword. Man has a dignity. Man, man has been made in the image and the likeness of God. God, again, is the one who's sovereign over all life. And the greatest gift that God can ever give to any person, any man or woman, is to give them the gift of life. God's the author of life. Therefore, he's the only one who has the ability to bestow it. He's the only one who has the right to take it away. So you see the enormity of the crime of murder because it takes the most precious thing that a man possesses, that's his life. And again, God is the one who's given man life. And again, God is the only one that can take life away. Therefore, whoever sheds a man's blood by a man, his blood shall be shed because he's made in the image of God. Again, Genesis 9 and 6. Now, some, for, for someone to take the life of another person, he, he's saying that it's going to require that, that person forfeit their own life. And, and God has ordained that government would carry out that penalty. God has ordained government to bear the sword, to carry out that penalty against somebody who murders someone else, and to carry it out without pity, without partiality, and without delay. So again, God is the one who has ordained capital punishment and, and, and to, to maintain an emphasis on the sanctity, the specialness of human life. God has ordained government, and God has ordained capital punishment through the government to vindicate the lordship over all things, even life itself. His lordship over all things, even life itself. So if a man passes beyond the border, of <coughs> that which belongs exclusively to God alone, uh, God who gives life, and someone comes and takes that life, then that person who takes another person's life past beyond the, the, what is acceptable, and therefore that person has to forfeit his own life. That's what he's saying. Now, capital punishment is not murder, because capital punishment is not an individual taking vengeance upon another individual. Capital punishment is the carrying out of the command of God with the delegated authority that God has given to human government. So capital punishment is carrying out the command of God that God himself has given and the authority that God has given to human government. So how does thou shalt not kill and, and turn the other cheek? How does that fit into discussion? Well, very simply, those two commands are for the individual. Those are for the individual. But here what we're looking at with Paul is the duties of the state, not the, not the individual. Again, power and authority and, and, and the command of God to exercise capital punishment is not given by God to the individual, but it's given by God to the state. And the common argument, again, these two common arguments about not killing and turning the other cheek, they really hold no valid, uh, they don't hold water here, they're not valid to the argument regarding the issue. Because again, we're not talking on a personal level, we're talking about the authority that God has given to the state. And again, for the most part, in society, those who tend to be most opposed to capital punishment, you're going to find those to be the humanists, those to be the atheists, those who do not recognize God or his authority. And their view of man is that he's nothing more than just an evolved animal. There's nothing sacred about man. Right? Just evolved. And again, I think you're going to find at the same time, these individualists that are secularists or humanists, atheists, they're the same kind of people that, that who oppose capital punishment are very often the same ones that promote all kinds of immorality in society, uh, uh, such as homosexuality. Paul says, if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So part of the ministry of God that he has given to human government, to the state, is that the state would make evildoers afraid. The state would make evildoers afraid. Right? They they would make evildoers afraid of the sword. Therefore, again, God uh, would would uh, uh, good would be promoted for everyone else when you get rid of the evildoer who has no thought for human life. Now, capital punishment again, if it's carried out, it should be carried out quickly. It should be carried out properly. And capital punishment does really become a a terror for the evildoer because not only does it remove that evil person who has committed the murder from the possibility of ever committing another murder again against another person. You read that about all the time, this person murdered this person and got released or murdered somebody else in jail and somebody else in jail, it seems to just go on. When you take that person out, that evildoer, that, that punishment uh, is a deterrent against them from ever to committing another murder. And, and certain, most certainly, if, if capital punishment is carried out correctly, it, it, it uh, is a restraint against others from committing that same kind of crime, because capital punishment is carried out quickly and swiftly, now it's not in our culture. I get that, right? And that's one of the one of the problems. But God has ordained human government that it would bear the sword, that it would use the power that God delegated to it as it, in the coercive powers of God to restrain evil. And the ultimate restraint of evil is you you take the life of the one who's taking the life of another. Now I got sociologists tell us well, capital punishment doesn't work. Uh, it's not effective, etc., and so forth. But the Word of God stands. The Word of God stands. Listen, God knows what brings stability to human society in a fallen world. God knows better than the sociologists. And God has ordained that the state use the sword in the form of capital punishment as required by those who commit crimes that deserve its penalty. And when Paul says, if you do what is evil, be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger of those who bring wrath upon the one who practices it. I also think at the same time, he's introducing another issue here. I believe that he is acknowledging the state has the right or the state has the power to use force, even deadly force, against those who seek to do harm to us as a nation, to us as people from another country. I think he's saying that we have the right The state has the right to bear the sword. And I think, again, I believe that the verse sanctions also the state's right to wage war against others who want to do us evil, another evil country. Because, again, if the function of the state is to restrain evil and to promote good, if enemies from without or enemies from within come in and try to do harm to the citizens of the state, the government has the uh, 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 ordained authority and the right to protect its citizens. And again, God has given human government with the power to wage war against those evildoers from another country who seek to do uh, its citizens harm. Now, sometimes even within uh, uh, an own country's nation, there are certain enemies that rise up, and, and again, they need to, the, the, the good of the people need to be uh, restrained uh, against that, those people within the state that are causing anarchy and chaos and, and bringing evil and death. So again, God for social order, for the good of the people, the good of society, He's given human government the power to bear the sword uh, in in for the protection of people, and God has again uh, ordained deadly force to punish evil, enemies from within, enemies uh, from outside. Now, I know that not everybody's going to agree with me on that, uh, on these two issues, the issue of capital punishment and the issue of just war is what we're going to call it. But nevertheless, I think that's what this section is teaching. On a related issue, I don't see in the text here of the New Testament, anywhere, this text or anywhere in the New Testament, I don't see that pacifism is advocated. If the state is given the power to defend its citizens from enemies, I think then the enemies of that country have a responsibility to do all within their power, again, to submit themselves to the governing authorities over them in a time of national crisis. So I would take that to the position of that even as Christians, if we're at war with another country, or at war with another country breaks out, we as citizens of this country, and this country should happen to reinstate the draft. You can look that up for you people who are too young to even know what that is. But if God would, if the country would reinstate the draft and conscript people into the army, those who are in this country were called to serve, I think a Christian should go. Because that's what the governing authorities asked us to do. And I think that Christians should be the very best soldiers in the entire military because they ultimately serve their king, which is the Lord. I see nothing in the New Testament that says that as Christians we have a right to contract out of the state just because the state goes to war. I see nothing in the teaching of the New Testament that suggests it would be wrong for Christians to be in the military. So again, all through the Old Testament, you see time and time again, the nation of Israel uh, was at war, carried off uh, by God himself uh, the command to go to war, to, to put certain people to death, and in some cases to exterminate an entire population because of their wickedness. So God used the nation of Israel as his instruments of righteousness, as a minister and avenger to bring up his wrath upon a wicked people. Now, again, the pacifist would come and completely disagree. I got that. The, the pacifist would say that this is an Old Testament teaching, this has nothing to do with the New Testament, the teaching of Christ, the pacifists would say, uh, completely something different. Uh, uh, Old Testament teaching has nothing to do with the New Testament Christian. Uh, therefore, on those grounds, the pacifists would hold that war of any kind, retaliation of any kind, involvement in any kind by the, by the Christian is not biblical. Right? That's something the Christian should never be involved with. Now, I'm not going to discuss the issue of war any further than I've already said, but throughout the history of the church, there's been a great deal of discussion uh, uh, and debate on this issue uh, on the matter of what is a just war and the Christian's involvement in, in war. So again, I'm not going to take time to go into all of that to any greater level than I already have stated, but consider this. Since the function of government is to restrain evil and to promote good, certainly war must be at times just when the safety and security of people are violated by evildoers outside the state. If the state has the ability to bear the sword, to maintain peace and order, to restrain evil and to promote good, if God has ordained government to maintain law and order within the state, certainly he has given the government the same power to deal with external relationships to the state. So government for, uh, is for the good of the people, for the restraint of evil, Consequently, when other people come and try to intend to bring harm upon us or to destroy our life, and the state has the duty to protect the interests of its citizens. Now, again, when you look at the New Testament, I don't see how you can come up with a doctrine of pacifism to let evil reign, to let evil have its day. Now, I will acknowledge the fact that some people and some people who are good people who call themselves evangelicals believe they have found a way to justify that, but I don't see it. I don't see anything in the New Testament that makes me believe that Christ himself, I don't see anything in the New Testament other than Christ himself accepted uh, in totality the entire teaching of the Old Testament. Right? He, he, he accepted the whole of the Old Testament. And I don't see any indication that he had any reservations or ridiculed anything that it taught. I I don't see anything by any way that indicates that he was in disagreement with the nation of Israel and the role that God used for the nation of Israel as an avenger against wicked people. I I see no information that would suggest to me that there are two gods. You've heard the argument, two gods. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and and, and anger, and Jesus is the God of the New Testament. He's a God of love. Right, He just teaches us to love everybody, whatever they do to you. But that's liberal teaching. That's not biblical teaching. It's unbiblical teaching because the reality is there's only one God. There's only one God. He's the same God, Old Testament, New Testament. And while Christ does teach on the individual level, we're to love our enemies, the discussion here with Paul is the discussion with reference to the state and the state's responsibilities. Individuals were not to retaliate, turn the other cheek, right? Individuals are not to seek personal vengeance. We're to leave room for God because vengeance belongs to him. That's his responsibility. But authority is given to the state by God to bear the sword, to be an avenger of his wrath against those who practice evil. And again, I see nowhere in the New Testament where Christ ever speaking to a soldier Telling that soldier that his evil was wrong, his his, his work was evil, and then he should pick a different occupation. I don't see it. So again, the commands "Thou shalt not kill" and "Turn the other cheek," that's for the individual. That's not the issue we're looking at. We're looking at the issue of the state. The state, by divine sovereign decree, has the necessity and the responsibility to protect its people from evil, within and without. Now, we could spend a whole lot more time talking on that, but we're not going to do that. And perhaps you're still unconvinced and disagree with me, and that's fine. Honestly, we're good. I'm good. You study the Scripture, you study the Scripture, and if you, by way of study of the Scripture, come to a position that God calls you as a Christian to take a position as a pacifist, and you believe that with all of your heart, then I would say to you, you're bound to your conscience, and you're not to violate your conscience before the Lord. However... I do think it would be too far for you to impose your standard across the board on every other Christian. To say that every other Christian must be a pacifist if they're going to call themselves a New Testament believer, I think is incorrect. So I'll agree to be gracious to you, you be gracious with me and other people who don't agree with the position you hold, and we just want to honor God. But this is what I think the text of Scripture teaches. Again, I find it somewhat ironic, and I'm not trying to take a shot here, but I do find it somewhat ironic that some of the pacifists I've met, uh, I've met tend to be the ones that harbor the most bitterness and hatred in, the hearts, in their hearts towards other people who don't agree with them, right? It, it's just like the unbeliever who doesn't believe in God gets angry when you talk to him about the God he doesn't believe in. There, there's a certain inconsistency logically, at least in my mind, when I, when I talk to people like that. All right, so we as Christians, we have a responsibility to submit to government because government's ordained by God. Uh, To resist human government is to be in rebellion against God. Um, Those who resist government are going to be punished. Government serves to restrain evil. Government serves for the promotion of good. And government has the right to bear the sword. Those two issues are going to become very vital. Uh, Again, restrain evil, promote good. When we continue this discussion, uh, Lord willing, next time. Number seven, we have to get to here before we can close up. We are to submit to human government for the sake of our conscience. Verse 5. Wherefore, it is necessary to begin in subjection, not only because of wrath, or to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the conscience' sake. So we should submit to human authority for all the reasons I just laid out. And we are to be in subjection not only because of the fear of the consequences, but we know that being in subjection to government is really the right thing to do. So uh, Paul's talking to people who were not believers. Now they're converted, and they start to come to understanding the truth, the way things are. They understand the nature of things. Remember, one of the things I told you, one of the reasons he writes this, is because within the Jews, there's a certain kind of mentality that we're going to get rid of this government. We're not going to have humans rule over us. Certainly not these Romans, right? See, all these people running around shooting or killing people with swords, you know, uh, causing insurrection. And, and he's, he's writing in part of the response to that. So he's saying, look, now that you become a Christian, now that you understand the truth, now that you understand the way things are, the nature of things, now that you're no longer ignorant, now that you understand the command of God, every, that every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities, You understand the reason, because there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. You understood the explanation that those who resist authority are really opposing the ordinance of God, therefore they're going to bring condemnation upon themselves. You understand that God has set government up for the good uh, of the people, therefore rulers are not a cause for fear of good behavior, but for evil. And if you want to live your life in uh, in this world without fear of authority, uh, then you need to do what you know to be the right thing to do. Right, You need to you, need, you know that, that if you do what is good, uh, you're going to have uh, praise from the government because it's a minister of good, as Paul says. You understand these things. You understand that uh, that uh, if you're evil, you practice evil, then you're going to be afraid, you should be afraid because uh, the government is going to bear the sword uh, against evil. He's a minister of God, an avenger of God, brings his wrath upon those who practice evil. So you understand all of that. You understand the necessity of being in subjection because it's the command of God, the right thing to do, and because it's an appeal to your conscience, now biblically informed, Christ-controlled, so to go against authority is to go against your conscience, and you don't want to do that, right? A biblically informed conscience, you now understand that to go against authority is to go against your own conscience. I'm not, I'm, I'm worried a little bit about going against the government because I don't want to be, I don't want them to bear the sword or and kind of wrath against me, but the bigger issue is I don't want to violate the Word of God, right? I want to, I want to, not violate my duty to God. I I don't want to violate my conscience. So for those sake, uh, not violating my conscience, where for it is necessary to be in subjection, not only for wrath, I fear punishment. I don't want to be fined. I don't want to go to jail. I got that. But also for conscience sake. He's saying, look, violating your conscience is a bigger motivation than the fear of punishment. Because everything we do in life should be what? For the glory of God. Every time you get up, every morning you get up, you say, Lord, help me to honor you this day and everything I do. Help me to live the best life possible. I, I thank you that when I fall and fail, and I'm going to do that, you haven't, that Christ has the one who uh, has establishes my relationship with you, not my performance, but what the person of Jesus Christ has done. Therefore, I want to give this day to you, and I just want to honor you the best of my ability. All right, our Father and our God, we're thankful for our look here at these verses in Romans chapter 13. We're thankful for the truth that is contained in this passage of Scripture. And we're thankful for your Word, and your Word is truth. So, Lord, help us to obey your Word. Help us to have your Word uh, hidden uh, in our heart. Help our desires to be to honor you first and foremost and and, uh, love you in everything that we do. We do love you. We do thank you for our day of worship. Uh, the, the morning worship, this afternoon, this evening's worship, we just thank you. You're so kind to us. Uh, help, help us to live as light in a dark world. Help us to be hope to the nations uh, that are deceived by Satan and his lies. Help us to be men and women of the truth, to love your truth, to be guided by your truth, proclaimers of your truth in, in a manner that is compassionate, with the same compassion and love that you've shown us through your Son, uh, Jesus Christ. Honor yourself, uh, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.